Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we continue our Meet the Team series with our Texas team member and university professor, Tram Lee. Tram, thanks for letting us in and sharing your story with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Meredith. And of course, boss lady, Judy Vordren's here. Hi, Judy. Love Meredith. Hi, Tram. <laughs> trying to think of different things to call you. I love it. <laughs> it's really challenging, that other part of my brain. Already off topic. So Tram, we're going to dive right in. You are a CPA and a lawyer, and you have toggled between Texas and Colorado. Can you share with us your career background and your story? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of have a very interesting career story, probably a little different than most people. But I mean, starting out, you know, growing up, I, I actually wanted to be either a professional musician or music teacher and have my own business. Because growing up, I played piano, violin. I was in my church choir. So I have a lot of that background growing up. I loved it. So then, you know, going into college as I was trying to grow up, I went to business school because I figured, you know, if I wanted to have my own business, I need a no business. I know music. I have that background. I ended up playing, you know, continued to play violin through college and took these, you know, business classes and took accounting classes my first I think my first semester as a freshman and I just loaded up because I wanted to get through school so I could start my business, you know, progress through, through college. And when I was, you know, I guess forced to decide what major, right. Cause I was like, well, I'm in music and I'm taking all these business classes. And my advisor was like a, an accounting professor actually. And he said, man, you have all A's and all these difficult classes. You should become an accountant. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Hi, who wants to become an accountant? <laughs> like, I'm only here to keep the books so I can play violin professionally. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. exactly. I was like, these are skills and, you know, you know, skill sets and things I think I need to know so I can be successful. Anyway, so I was like, well, okay, I, I guess, you know, I'm almost, I mean, I finished school within three years, my undergrad. So I rushed to, to finish. I got an accounting degree you know, and as I was graduating, you know, I had a lot of different job offers. I mean, I did internships at, you know, CPA firms. I worked, you know, a lot of, I don't know, just different places. You know, I worked in retail. I also worked at doctor's offices and just kind of worked so I could tell, you know, to see really what I wanted to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I actually interned at the federal government, which is GAO. It's a legislative branch of government. And I just really enjoyed it. You know, I really enjoyed it because the type of work I got to, you know, that I was engaged in really helped, I felt like, make a big impact. Meaning, you know, we looked at government programs, we looked at policy, we made recommendations to Congress on, you know, various legislation, how various agencies were operating, you know, what was efficient, what was working, you know, what were they spending money appropriately. So, I got to see all that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So that's right off the bat. You know, I, I abandoned my music career. I decided to become an accountant, got my CPA. I worked for the federal government. It wasn't a dream I had growing up, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but there I was, you know, and it was very fulfilling until it, it wasn't. You know, I mean, the longer I worked in government, I think I spent 
I don't know, almost eight years at, you know, GAO. And I think it just dawned on me that, you know, what I was doing was really important. I just felt like, you know, I wanted to do more. And so that was my push to go into law school. I was like, well, if I go to law school, I'll be more versed in the policy side, the the laws, the legal side. And so there I went, pursued a law degree and quit my job. My husband was very supportive of that. So there I went. But I guess in terms of my timeline, in terms of school, and then, you know, I, I grew up in Texas. Well, born in the Philippines. My parents were immigrants from Vietnam, and I was born pretty much en route to America. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, the life I knew, right, was from the time my parents arrived to Texas till I started working. I met my now husband um, through some mutual friends, and he was from Colorado. We dated, you know, long distance, I don't know, six, seven year, uh, years. Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. It was a long time. I think. I was a sophomore in college when I'd met him. And then we got married about six years later. So we just celebrated our 15th year anniversary last week on Thanksgiving. So time. Congratulations. Thank you. I know. (laughs) I'm amazed. I'm like, I still feel like I'm a kid, but I'm like, no, I'm not. I've been married for 15 years. I've known him for half my life, but he's from Colorado. So I guess, you know, when, when we got married, it was a decision time where, you know, I could stay in Texas and he could try to find a job. He's an engineer. He's like, well, I can find a job maybe, but with, you know, the federal government, I was able to move laterally to Colorado and he didn't have to job hunt. So that's how I ended up in Colorado. Okay. And then that's why you went to law school in Colorado. Yep. Oh, I did not know that because yeah. I know you during law school. So that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, from there, the magic happened. I, (laughs) I graduated from law school and, you know, I had a professor who said you should look at the LLM program in tax because of your background. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Why not? I love school. I love to learn. So then I got my LLM and I think it was my actual last semester of the LLM program. And I took a salt class And again, the magic happened, right? Because I was like, wow, this is so interesting. You know, it makes total sense. You know, it was a pretty small class because it's an elective. And I mean, I had peers in the class who totally hated the class. They're like, this is the worst class ever. And I looked over and I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) I was like, this is, this is pretty cool. So, you know, when I graduated, I was like, yeah, I I really like that area of practice. I definitely kept an open mind. Um, I had the tax background, I have a CPA. So I figured, you know, public accounting makes sense. And then that's where I met Judy. You know, I was, I think I was not eight, eight, nine months pregnant. Pretty yeah, pregnant. you're pretty pregnant. <laughs> with <laughs> number that two. Time. Yeah, it was yeah, great. Yeah. My second one with number two. Yeah. So, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I have to love the work. I mean, I was old. I, I think I was 30 by then. And I was to love the work. I have now have a family. I have a husband, a one-year-old about to have another baby here. I had to make some decisions and, you know, I had all this school and I love to work. I love to learn, but I also love my family. And when I met Judy, I knew, right. Like she totally was supportive of all that. And I just kind of sensed that I was like, this is the right culture for me. So there I went. But now you guys both took the same professor, didn't you? At DU, because you guys both got your LLMs at DU, right, Meredith? Because you guys would have taken the same SALT class professor, right? 
depends on if Kozik he was still or- te- yeah. I had Kozik. Kozik. Yeah. I had Kozik. Yeah. So See? I would have I would have taken the the salt class in either 2006 or I think in like 2007. Oh, yeah, no, I didn't start law school until till 2007. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So who knows? So a few years behind, but that's too funny, right? Because it's it's funny that you guys both had something that introduced you to state and local tax. I had nothing in law school and my master's, nothing. Well, and wow. I did not very well in my salt class. <laughs> and I think it's because I overthought it because I was like, I'm doing this because I was working, you know, we'll get into my story in a future episode, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> But I think I was so focused on like, I just want to be good at my job and good at my job, good at my job. I'm taking this because I should, but I just think I like totally overthought it and just like totally, and I wasn't, I'm not a school person, but yeah, I did not do well in our salt class. I do. Isn't that funny? It doesn't matter though. Like I always feel like even in my law school, some of the people that are the bottom of the class are the most successful because they were intentional about what they chose to practice in. So being the top of a class doesn't necessarily mean success. I mean, it's a good pivot point to get somewhere, but it isn't really who you end up being. Certainly the people at the top of the class might've done well, but it's really kind of becoming more intentional about what you're doing. So I don't know that, you know, it's not that doing well in school is not a good thing, certainly, but it isn't always the path to success, in my opinion. Well, Judy, I mean, I think the whole path to success, you know, I'm right now reading, I know the, there's a, you know, question about what book am I reading? But I mean, one of the books I'm reading right now is like designing your life. And it says, hey, being successful doesn't mean you're happy. And no. so I'm always, you know, thinking about that, right? I'm always thinking about, well, how, how am I going to live and work and play, right? Because I, I need a map because I've always been that way. <laughs> so I think it's important to think about how you feel inside too. Like you were saying what resonated with you and you're saying your peers were saying, oh my gosh, I can't do this. And so many people say that about what we do. Oh, my head spins. Oh, I can't stand it. Sales tax, whatever. States. Ugh. I just hate it. And I think, why do people hate it so much? I mean, thank you for hating it, I guess, because it means less people want to like it. But I just think it's interesting that you kind of thought the complexity, which I think a lot of people find is is untenable. They can't get through it. But you actually, it resonated with you. The curiosity, and I feel that way too. There's some creativity in what we get to do, which I think is incredibly motivating and fun, you know, where it's like, I can find a revenue rolling on something for the IRC, but I can't easily find an answer in Vermont versus Texas versus Virginia. I mean, it's just going to depend on how they all work. And understanding that makes it kind of a fun part of our career, I think, which is kind of un cpa Yeah. Well, I'm not your traditional CPA. With your music. (laughs) Yeah. That's got to be, you're getting your creative side needed, met with your difference in your your background in music. Yeah, definitely. I wonder. Interesting. Oh my goodness, Tram. I did not know that about you. Well, and I want to take that because now, Tram, you are teaching... Yeah. You are our resident professor. Yes. <laughs> you are teaching at the University of Texas Arlington, the state and local tax class. So do you find, I'm assuming again, it's another elective like it was at DU. Do you find that there are some people or some of your students are just like, oh, this is awful or, you know, have that passion that you did or where, how do you think your class now relates to kind of the general class that you took? as a student, right? Yeah. And you've just kind of carried this like, oh, well, that's interesting. Oh, well, that's interesting. And just like this 
this trajectory of, oh, that's interesting. And now you're on the opposite end, infusing that interest, you know, I'm uh, hopefully in some, in at least one of your students, right? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I can definitely see similarities, right. In terms of where students lie in terms of interest or whether or not they're able to grasp this concept because, you know, it's a small class, it's selective. I usually have anywhere from 12 to 20 students in each semester. And so I would have to say every semester, there are generally one or two students who are super sharp. They get it, they like it. You know, it's not too difficult uh, for them to like follow along and, and, you know, catch on to concepts. But then, you know, we have a lot of other students who are like, oh, I'm really confused. Oh, this is, this is really hard to understand because I actually, so my, my class that I teach, um, it's at a business school and they are all mostly MS, you know, tax certificate type of students, graduate students, not lawyers. So the difference there is that, you know, I teach it like a law school class where I assign mainly cases for them to read, to brief. We do cover kind of the technical, you know, concepts too. But I mean, I push those cases through, you know, to these students who are accounting students who don't read, who don't like to read probably. But, you know, the feedback I generally get every semester is that, wow, we feel like we learned because in our other, you know, traditional tax classes, it's not taught that way. I'm not teaching substantive law. I'm teaching them, you know, the overview, you know, issue spotting. And so basically I I want them to walk away with, you know, an understanding of, you know, some of these key salt issues and skill sets for them to like critically think. And, you know, it's like, I don't ask them to memorize anything, right? I'm like, it's open book. You can access anything. You can search the internet. I mean, it's like real life, right? You, you come across a situation where there are implications that they need to be able to identify and then figure out, you know, kind of, you know, what the right answer is. And in a lot of cases, it's gray, right? And it's really hard. And I I really feel like that's the hardest part, you know, the the struggle that the students are, you know, dealing with, with the class. But I mean, overall, I get really, really positive feedback in terms of the class itself. They, they, They are learning things that they probably won't be exposed to otherwise. You can't know the exact law and the exact, the exact answer in all 50 states, right? Yep. Like there, you know, as a federal tax practitioner, and I don't want to discount, you know, our other tax brethren. I mean, because I, I can't pick up the internal revenue code and figure out where I'm looking at, right? There's some, there's some codes that I don't like. I'm looking at U168K bonus depreciation that because it directly applies to me from like a conformity standpoint, Right but we can't know it all. So I need to know, oh, there's two entities. Is it, is it unitary? There's combined consolidated. So it's, it is more of that. I need to understand the 30,000 feet, mm-hmm. to exactly what you said, issue identify, and then, you know, dig in deeper specifically in that, in that state's code, regs, cases, because a lot of what we're doing is based on case law, right? Yeah. You look at sales tax, like, all right, quill, 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 quill. June 21st, 2018, Wayfair, Wayfair, Wayfair. So it's like a lot of how we have to figure out what's happening is through case law. And that's what I remember too a lot from just, you know, my early on state classes at KPMG. It's just like, here's the stack of cases that you need to read. 
Yeah, no, and teaching that critical thinking is so imperative to, I think, a practitioner in our space, which is why I think the master's of tax, the law degrees are really helpful in state and local tax. I would say, as I hired and built out a team at a for- my former firm, what I looked for was that quality of understanding and knowledge and also intention, right? A desire to do it as opposed to, I'm a CPA, I will do this right? I mean, this is not just a simple job. It's complicated. It requires nuance and it requires the ability to take the complicated issues, make them simple for our clients so they understand how to handle it, but also deal with the nuance so that we give them the right answer. And I think that a lot of practice, what I find in the federal comparatively, or even my audit brother, and they're like, can't you just give me a list? And I think, how am I going to give you a list for 50 states? Like, if you do this and you do that, I could give you a flow chart maybe. But yeah, I think that you just don't find a lot of people choosing to pivot into state and local. So it is interesting that both of you have chosen it as, as of me and my, our entire team, because it is not the traditional path for most CPAs or even masters of tax or lawyers for that matter. Yeah. Although I think lawyers more so than anybody else do really enjoy the nuances of this. And like you said, you got a master's of tax, Meredith. It's that same thing. I chose tax. So you're getting that nuance level education before you practice or concurrent with practice in your situation. Mm -hmm. What do you find within the students that like there's the biggest misconception about state tax? I don't know if it's a misconception as opposed to not being exposed to it at all. You know, some semesters I'll have students who either work in the industry or, or, you know, they have internships or, you know, public accounting and have very limited roles in, you know, preparing tax returns. So they don't see a whole lot of it. And what they do see is very simplistic. You know, when we were covering, I mean, this last class I had, we covered income tax, personal income tax, and, you know, the different nuances. And then, you know, with the COVID and the work from home and, you know, all those implications, you know, I kind of threw it out there for, you know, the students who were preparing returns and they were like, uh, our returns are really simple. There's not a lot of complexities. I'm like, oh, that is the issue, right? It's the, the misconception that, oh, we are just filling out some forms and not really understanding the impact, right? The implications of, of filing those returns, multi-state returns anyways. You know, just understanding, you know, it does matter how you file. Right. So I feel like, you know, they don't know what they don't know. But that, that's probably the, the biggest thing there. Well, and you have it with, you know, when I, after being in the, you know, the big four for 14 years, you know, so working with some of the largest taxpayers of our nation, of our world, honestly, very complicated issues. And I went to a regional firm and I realized that there are 46,000 CPA firms in America. I did not know there are that many. So, you know, up in the whatever, the echelons of the 100,000 person firm, and you're thinking there's a lot of small practitioners and ultimately in SALT, everybody has a SALT problem. Everybody has a sales use tax problem in their home state. Everybody has an income tax problem in their home state. And very few businesses operate solely in one community. And we see this all the time, as you're well aware, especially like you live in Texas and you've got no individual income tax in Texas, yet you have a lot of partnerships and S-corps. And of course, everybody loves that because there used to be an income tax burden uh, at the individual level. So there was a complete disregard of it in Texas specifically. And then Texas said, nope, we're going to tax entities. And then that still creates a tax burden. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, the wheels are turning. But what did Texas do? Very broad-based sales tax. Very broad-based. High property taxes. So they get their money somewhere. They still get in the individual income tax area. So that's a really interesting nuance, especially coming from Colorado, the comparison between your two states that you've lived in. Yeah. No, definitely the nuances. I mean, like, 
I, I guess I take we all probably take it for granted what we know and the you know the nuances of the facts. They really matter. But I think you know from the students' perspective, you know it's it's a whole new world, right? So they're very much interested. I mean, I it's really awesome when I see a student asking you know some of these questions that you know, you see them thinking, right? Even with like Nexus, they're like, yeah, I heard about this webinar and I heard about Cookie Nexus. Can you tell us more about it? You know, like, oh, absolutely. And it's, and when you tell the story about, you know, why a government, why the states are, you know, creating, you know, these new standards and the, the history behind it, you know, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Well, I don't know if you noticed moving from Colorado to Texas, like your property taxes were lower here, probably. Your sales taxes were equivalent. Your income tax was here. But I imagine you're about the same because your property taxes are probably really high. Yeah. So that makes up for your individual income tax because I'm sure yours are five times or I would say probably, no, five times I would bet. Wouldn't you say what it was here? Yeah. Well, three or maybe three to four. Three I times? mean, we broke okay. even. We bro- I did the analysis. I, we did broke you? Even. Yeah. <laughs> I was just curious because your property taxes are so high in Texas. Everybody says, oh, we don't have an individual income tax. I'm like, yeah, they make up for it. Yeah, no, we, we broke even when I, the first year we moved, I'm like, I ran the numbers. I'm like, all right, you know, it's all good. It goes to the government. But all, it's a perception though. And there's no individual income tax is what I think a lot of people say in Texas and they don't see where they get you some other way. And that's obviously why we have a job because there's a way the government finds a way to get a piece of the pie to build the roads and serve the communities and blah, 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 we do. That's right. We don't want to talk smack about Texas because while we are from Colorado and there's some like friendly banter about, you know, when you stuck behind a car with a Texas license plate, whatnot. But we have found that it is while an aggressive state and a very smart state that we have had a lot of good fortune dealing, you know, working with, we've got a couple handful of agents that we work with at the comptroller's office that are awesome that I can email out of a totally different unrelated thing that are right. So Texas, we're not talking, we're not talking crap. No, I think they're, (laughs) they're probably one of the best governments in my opinion, because highly responsive, get, put information out there for the public to consume. They're not secret. They don't know what they're saying. They tell you, this is what we think here. You can rely upon it. I like Texas a lot and they have a great VDA program, the best in the nation. I mean, I just think people could get other governments could get a little bit of an idea about how transparent Texas is with taxpayers. I think they're phenomenal as the culture, you know. As yeah, we go. No, no, the culture here in Texas is very pro-business. You know, we want to encourage growth. We want to encourage, you know, the economic flourishment of, of our community. I mean, obviously we like it big here. We like big roads, <laughs> like the highways. I mean, you know, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of it, that has to do with, you know, that mindset. So. Which means that makes it transparent to taxpayers because you have to make the rules be known or you can't follow them. Absolutely. Well, and Tram, you have, so we've got, you know, some government experience with the GAO, you know, lawyer, CPA, accountant, just kind of that like critical aspect of the way that your brain works. How do you apply that to servicing our clients because you have some incredible relationships with them, some of your clients that have come in, to- you know, some from referrals, some totally unknown, but they're like, nope, I want to work with Tram. What do you offer to our clients that really just, you know, makes them say, I want to work with Tram? And it's okay to brag about yourself. Well, I, you know, we'll do it for you if you don't oh, want to. Well, I, I work really hard. No, I do everything for them. No, no. I mean, I, I think I, I actually, and I don't consciously think about this, but I really put myself in their shoes, Right. And anything I do, because like, 
you know, I know Judy, I just, you know, working with Judy in all these years, I mean, that's, I think that's how she operates too. It's almost like, it's not our money going out the door or, you know, the, the penalties or, you know, any kind of, of consequence directly on us. But when I am helping a client or advising, I mean, I put them myself in their shoes and what would I do if I had these problems? How hard would I work? Cause I don't want to be the one holding the bag. I don't want to be the one getting in trouble with the government. It's a lot of work. So yeah. to the extent that, you know, I'm able to advise them based on what I know, how I would do it. And if I don't know, I ask you guys, right. I'm like, Hey, you know, what's the best way to resolve this? And so that's what I would do for myself. Right. We try to take ownership. Like what do they really need to know as business? We try to be business friendly, but also get the law and the meat behind it. So they have pragmatic, practical answers as much as they want a list. We try to create the list for them, even though we know the list has nuances. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so true though. I get so stressed when other people owe other people money, but especially penalties are not deductible. Right. So it's like, it's not a good thing to pay penalties, but there's sort of this view of like, let them catch me. I'm like, Oh, okay. Good luck with that. That doesn't mm-hmm. seem like the best strategy, but okay. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think maybe people, their misperception of the risk until we put some numbers on the paper, right? Like we are giving them, Hey, this is, this is what the law says. We can tell them that and they can, you know, say, okay, thank you for letting us know. But then once we put the numbers down on the paper, I feel like that's where, you know, the client gets it. And I mean, for, you know, from our own perspective, it's like, well, would you do something unless you knew there were, you know, significant consequences? Yep. I'm actually having a conversation this afternoon as we're talking about a client and they owe very little money, but they have a duty. And and we're sort of like, ugh, you know, do we not do something? It's going to cost more to comply than it is for what they owe in tax. And now I'm starting to think, you know, I'm thinking about it over the weekend. I'm like, they're a publicly held company. We can't just like not do something. Like yeah. that would be not the way we should advise them. I'm like, we just need to do it. Sucks. It is what it is, but that's the law. So we're, we can't just have that, like have something come out in the market where they, you know, chose not to, to violate the laws, like as a public health company, like that's no bueno. So anyway, it's interesting, isn't it? The push pull of entrepreneurs saying, well, what's the cost versus what is the risk? And you're like, well, the cost is higher than the risk. Yet if you get in trouble, it's not right. So do you do the right thing, even if it's a higher cost or do you not? And I think it depends on your facts on when you make those decisions, but, and then you could fix everything a lot cheaper than you can fix one thing that can be troubling to you. Well, and it's interesting too, because when you've got some clients that like, they're so in the weeds and they, they have kind of been thinking on this path, like, no, I don't do this. No, I don't do this. No, I don't do this. And because no one's been kind of, offering an alternative perspective or asking the right questions to make, to get them off that yes. path, then they're like, oh crap, that's important. That's important. Yep. It's like, yep. yes, because we're in the nuts and details and we see that and we've had the experience to know what's important and have, you know, each of us collectively over, you know, our team, we're a small team, but we're mighty, right? We have over a hundred years of experience that they're like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yep. And then, you know, we can come in and we can just ask the right questions, get the right information and then make them say it's okay. Like it's okay. It's okay that you didn't know that you're not paid to be a state and local tax expert controller or CFO. That's where, you know, we come in and try to provide that value because you're not, you're already doing a lot. We'll get you there on the other half. 
Well, and I think they blame a lot their CPA who did their tax filings, and they said, well, why did they tell me? And I and I think, I don't know why 46,000 CPAs didn't tell you. You know, I mean, I don't really get that. Honestly, it really is distressing to me. And But if you think about it, you guys both got master's of tax and or LLM, master's of tax, and I got a master's of tax, not one SALT class, and you had one. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, I mean, what is... There's a little bit of something going on with their educational system that's not really giving. And then out of all the students getting master's or LLMs, how many people take these classes, right? So if it's an elective in your instance, a UD. So Mm -hmm. it's like it's not incumbent on anybody to put that as part of the educational process. So that's been really fascinating to me just to see historically how much this is such a big deal and yet how little education and thought is put around it in our CPA and legal community. So then why, I guess, Tram, why do you think UT Arlington decided to have a SALT class? Like how, have they always had a SALT class or is it relatively new now that they found you with the ability to teach it? Like where, where do you think they found that value? Yeah, I actually don't know, but I, I do know. So I started teaching SALT back in 20, my first semester was fall of 2017. So not very many, so not so long, but before that they did have someone else teach it because they gave me, you know, you know, their old syllabus or whatever. And I'm like, oh, this guy is a, an, a trust and a state's attorney in the area. I'm like, oh my gosh, they have that person teaching salt. That's crazy. Right. But I think somewhere along the line, the school must have realized that there was a need for this area, right. In their program. And I guess they struggled to find the right professor right. or practitioner to teach it. Right. Well, when, when I went to the regional firm, they had been through oodles of people to take the position I w- un- unwittingly took. And I had no idea how hard that was going to be for me. And honestly, very few people would leave the ivory tower of the big four to go to a regional firm and start their salt practices. Certainly not 10, 15 years ago. No way. Why would you give that up and go somewhere that people don't get? And it is interesting to me that there is so little traction. And now with Wayfair, you're seeing all these sales tax providers coming out with automation, set it and forget it mentality. And, and you're like, that's not really how it works. It isn't set it and forget it. It's complicated. It's nuanced. And it's not just selling the same thing, the same place everywhere in the same rule. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that and just want to fix something and get it done. And then they don't realize that that there's some uh, liability on the back end of that. So then I guess, Tram, when it comes to, you know, our clients and working together as a team and whatnot, what drives and motivates you to do your best work each day? Because I know you are an incredibly hard worker. You are incredibly diligent. You know, you are an incredibly the way your mind thinks kind of fits in with kind of the rest of us and how we're all a little different, right? But like what really motivates you and drives you every day to do the best work that you possibly can? Well, I I don't know. I think it comes from just who I am in terms of if there's something I'm doing, I have to do it right. And I don't want to let you guys down. I don't want to let clients down. I don't want to let myself down. And also I, I think a big part of me, you know, as a you know, mother of two young girls, I want to be a really good role model for them, right? I know I'm, you know, I'm a first generation college, graduate school, you know, law degree. All that is very, uh, I'm a first generation from my, you know, side of the family, even like my siblings all got, you know, college degrees, but I'm like, I want to push and I want to do the very best I can. And I want my kids to do that too, because there are so many opportunities here in America that, you know, if my parents hadn't come over here, I probably 
I don't know what, what I would be doing today. So I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. So I think that really pushes me to, you know, do what I do every day. That's awesome. And so I guess, you know, kind of before I pester you with some like more fun stuff that are rapid questions that aren't so rapid, <laughs> tell us one thing about you that we don't know. Well, I didn't know the music thing. So I learned something today. <laughs> I mean, I knew you played, but I didn't realize that was a passion or I forgot if I did know it. Or a future career. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know, just kind of fun that you guys don't know. I I would really, really love to be a contestant on the Wheel of Fortune. Really? Really? Yes. (laughs) You know trivia? No, no. No, it's not trivia. It's it's kind of a game of luck. It's like you spin the wheel. Yeah. It's it's a giant game of hangman where you... That's... I don't... pretty sure that's not, I think I did with my husband the other day and that's not, I think the appropriate term anymore, but <laughs> it's, it's a puzzle game. So it's like, you guess the letters to fill in the word. Oh, right. Okay. I'm trying to think like, You're thinking Jeopardy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking Jeopardy. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You spin and then you get to pick and you buy yep. vowel and all that good stuff. Okay. You would like to play that. Oh, you know, I grew up, I grew up watching that show with my mom religiously. <laughs> you know, I remember when I, was applying for college and my mom, you know, I was looking at schools in Texas as well as schools outside of the state. And my mom was like, you know, who's going to watch Will of Fortune with me if you move away? Right. <laughs> That's pre-Zoom and, and all the stuff we've been able to use now. No technology to share. A, oh my goodness. How funny. Have yeah. you ever applied? No, it's on my bucket list. It's probably been on my bucket list for 20 years now. Now that we um, know it, we're going to apply for you. Just watch. Like, we're going to somehow, I don't know I, how you, you know, do that. You know, my family and I applied to be on the Family Feud. Oh. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We didn't get on, but we did it. It was pretty fun. You know, you pick the thing and you hit the little buzzer and you're like, whatever the survey says, if you remember yeah. that show. And my grandma wanted to be on it. So we went for it. Oh, that's huh. hilarious. That is when fun. did you do that? It, that way back when I was like I, from San Diego was, I mean, when my grandmother was alive. So it must've been when I was in college. Oh, how funny. No, so it was kind of funny. It was very informal. It was just set at like a conference center and you went in and you mimicked the game and they videotaped you. Oh, and my husband and I interviewed to be on this other show that only was on for a little while with when a Paltrow was on it. It was something about marriage or something. And Paul and I got interviewed to be on that. I can't remember what that show was, but it was kind of fun just to check it out, see what it's all about. This, wow. So I I'm, think you should do it. <laughs> I was like, I'm a little, I'm a little speechless right now. Because <laughs> now, now my brain's going like... It was called say. a marriage ref. It was like in and out very quickly. If somebody I was, was going to say, did that, ever, did, did that ever make it to like <laughs> It was time? on prime time for like one season and then it just went away. But it was, uh, it was uh, Jerry Seinfeld started it. It was his idea. So you huh. had a referee an issue. You had to bring some silly issue to the I... forefront about what you're fighting about as a couple. And then this group of people get to decide. Like you get to, keep... so one was a pole dancer. Like she liked to, you have the pole or he wanted the pole. I don't know what the answer was. And it was a fight, a silly fight. And then this arbitrary group of judges gets to hear all their stories. And then they pick, like you need to have the pole because she likes the pole dancer. You wanted a pole dancer. I don't know. Of course, the two lawyers need a jury to decide. I would love to watch Judy and Paul do that. Although sometimes, depending on like, if he's working from home that day, sometimes we get a little bit of that in the background, especially when you guys are up in like the mountains. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Could be interesting. It was all about the closets at the time. Like we should put closet organizers in. And he was like, no, we don't need to spend their money on that. I'm like, we do. We need to hire a professional. I don't know how to make these closets work. Anyway. 
<laughs> we did do it ultimately. <laughs> All right, Tram. We got, a bunch of ta- we got a bunch of talkers. So let's see if we can keep this semi-quick. All right, ready? I yeah. think you've, you've been briefed, but all right. You, start, you said a little bit about this, but what are you reading right now? A lot of different things. <laughs> so, you know, d- you know, Design Your Life was ongoing. It's kind of my self-help type of books. I read, I don't know, all kinds of things. So I just started Carnicles of Narnia which I've only read the, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. I was going to say, I, was, I read the first one way back in elementary school. Yeah. 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 So I've had a renewed desire to start reading more fun things. And so I'm reading with the girls. So Aww. they're really excited. So that is pretty new. And then I read a lot of like faith-based stuff. Like, you know, I'm trying to be a better person, try to be kinder, trying to be more patient because, you know, there are some days that it's, it's tough. So it's just a lot of different things I read. Tiger mama. <laughs> yes. I'm a tiger mom, a helicopter mom, whatever, you know, you want to call me. So right now, I need the help. I know you're not doing a lot of driving right now, but <laughs> when you are in the car, what do you listen to in said car? The radio. Okay. What kind, like, what do you well, listen to on the radio? You know, kind of popular pop, rock, hip hop, whatever's moving my jam as I'm do driving to Walmart. you change the station while you're driving around? Are you... Yeah. Go to one go-to and then move it? Or what do you do? Yeah, so I have, you know, the pre-programmed stations. And so basically, I don't really like to listen to commercials. So, and then, you know, I started listening to country a little bit. So just a variety. And if it, you know, it's, it's my mood, I, I keep it on. If otherwise, I'll move on. Do you have cowboy yeah. boots? <laughs> I do. And I don't really you wear them. Texas? Yeah. Okay. I bought a pair when I went there. Every time I feel like I go to Texas, I get a cow- pair of cowboy boots. <laughs> I don't there's plenty of cowboy. There's plenty of people rolling around in cowboy boots in Colorado anyway, too. Yes, that too. I feel like it's a thing. FM line, seaboat. Okay, back to you. All right. What, what's your what's your favorite movie? Oh, it has to be Moulin Rouge. Oh, okay. It's a musical. Um, I love musicals because it's about love, and you know, the greatest thing on earth is love, and to be loved and be loved in return. What are three words or phrases that Grace would use to describe you? I asked Grace this morning, she was shoving food in her mouth before getting to her next Zoom call. She said she would describe me as pretty, crazy, <laughs> and kind. Oh, I love pretty, it. Pretty, crazy, I, and cry- kind. PCK. Love- PCK. <laughs> and then what is your favorite thing to do with each one of your kids? Ooh, so uh, Hannah, she's my oldest. She is 10 turning 11 this month. And she's very artsy. She loves to draw. She loves to create crafts. So her favorite thing that we do is any kind of, you know, painting, canvas painting. We've been doing resins, which we create like molds. I think I still sent you guys photos over. Yeah, our yeah, summer. Yeah. Like we make coasters, we make keychains, we make all kinds of really cool things. You guys are probably going to get something resiny uh, <laughs> from me because I have a lot of that stuff. Um, so arts and crafts with Hannah. And then with Grace, you know, so the girls started violin last summer, so a year and a half now. And I made both of them do it, even though Grace, she's really into it. And Hannah's not so much, but I still make them do it. But Grace loves it when I play with her. And so we've been practicing Jolly O Saint Nick or something. And so there's like a three part. So there's part A, B, and C. And Grace is like, Mom, be my C. Because her and Hannah are A and B. So, I mean, it's just love playing violin with her. because She's really talented, actually. So 
Oh, that is so awesome. That's so special. Yeah. Ah, and it is interesting to see if it resonates or not. Because my daughter played violin for a while and she did it for a couple of years. And now she's playing the piano every night because she can read music. Yeah. She wants a keyboard for Christmas and I don't know how to buy a keyboard. So I don't know what that means. You have a piano. Play the piano. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Absolutely. All right. And then last one. What is one thing that you've learned during stay at home? That being patience is a must for my own sanity, for my, the sanity of my family. You know, we're all together so much that, you know, we lose our temper very quickly. We get annoyed, we get mad, we get angry. So I feel like the patience has to be at the forefront of our day. And so I try to try to be more patient, breathe, things like that. All right, Tram, thank you so much for sharing your story. We are lucky to have you as part of the team. Yes, we are. This has been another episode of Saltivation. I'm Meredith Smith. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented. 